I want to put a scenario in front of you. Just uh, kick your, let your imagination carry you here for just a minute. Here's your scenario. It's not too far-fetched. Maybe you've even encountered this. If you haven't, you probably will at some point in your life. You have received an invitation to a party, a dinner party, some social function of some kind, at which you know that you will know few to if anyone there. Okay? And you can't get out of it. You have to go. Okay? So there's your scenario. There's two basic ways. This is a little stereotypical, but there are two basic ways uh, that folks will respond to that sort of invitation, that sort of scenario. One is... You'll, you have to go, so, okay, you're there, but, but what will be your stance? What will be your approach? What will be your response to, you know, once you walk in and, and what's that air about you? Some of us, some of us, group one, will shut down. You're there, not, you know, physically. You shut down, you clam up, you move to the corner, maybe even literally, and you just wait it out. You look for the magazines, you know, you're thumbing through. That's group one. Group two. Group two rises to the occasion, plays it up. The energy surges. The adrenaline is hot, and you are determined to wow the crowd. You know none of them, but you're, deter- you know, you're, you're there. You're rising to the occasion. Here's the funny thing. Both of those groups have something really interesting in common. It's not obvious at all on the, on the surface, but oftentimes that... Um, Playing things down or raising things up is rooted in the same thing. A deep insecurity and a conviction that no one there really wants to know you. That's why group one is shutting down. That's why group two is acting out. To be safe. There's more in common there. And those two, what seem to be radically different responses, a whole lot more in common in those two things than you may realize. And what's at the root of both of them, oftentimes, oftentimes, is not just a deep-seated insecurity that the people there at this function don't want to know me, but that God himself doesn't really want to know me either. You've got a Bible. We're going to go to Leviticus now. We're continuing on in our series here, just hitting the high points. If you've been paying attention to the series, you already know we're skipping around, skipping forward here a bit through the book. So we're in Leviticus 8, okay? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, okay, so that's where we are. Leviticus chapter 8, uh, it's, we're going to read the whole chapter. That's 36 verses. I know that's a long reading. There's a lot of slides you're going to see us uh, go through here on the screen here. There really wasn't a way around that to, to summarize and skip around, uh, so we really, really do need to read the whole chapter. But let me do give you some, some milestones as we move through, some things that might help you pay attention, not fall asleep by the time we get to verse 26 or something like that. Okay, so the chapter is basically divided into seven sections, okay? It's pretty clear, English and Hebrew, seven sections which, by the way, is symbolic in Hebraic, Aramaic culture for completion. That's worth noting, okay? So there's seven sections, and each section you can see marked out by this clause, as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, 
as the Lord commanded. So if you're looking for something to keep your attention, there you go. Leviticus 8, verses 1 through 36. Does God really care to know us or not? Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 through 36. Hear now the word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the Urim and the Thummim and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times. And he anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it and Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of the blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and the right thigh, 
And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it. And the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us understand this? Please, would you help us to understand this? We're coming with a question. We're coming with a question, not just what does this mean, but as we started, do you want to know us? Do you know us? Do you want to know us? And how can that be? Why would that be? And we ask that you give us insight to this, into this passage, into this complicated ceremony where we see the priests, Aaron and his sons, ordained and consecrated before the people for the first time. Would you help us to understand what's going on here for us? We pray in your name. Amen. Ceremonies of any kind, especially the higher and more formal uh, they are, ceremonies of most any kind are meant to heighten and to draw our attention to certain things, right? And oftentimes, over the course of those ceremonies, they bring a change of status to the main parties involved in the ceremony. Think of a graduation ceremony, right? The person begins, they don't have the diploma, then they flip the tassel, and now they have a diploma. They walked in not having graduated, now they have graduated. Think of a wedding, right? Same thing. At the beginning of the ceremony, it's one thing. At the end of the ceremony, it's a completely different thing, a change of status. You see, something like that here with what we just read from Leviticus in Leviticus 8. A change of status for Aaron and his sons in the presence of God and all the people, they are now the Lord's priests. They are now his priests. Now, what's a priest? What are they for? What is their job description? Well, they are to serve as mediators. 
More precisely, they are to bring the people into the presence of God. Okay, so that's your definition. That's what a priest is, is what they're to do. They'll be a mediator to bring the people into the presence of God. That's your definition. But we do have some difficulty with this, if we're honest, and we need to own this before we go any further. Our struggle with priests like this, especially like when you get on the other side of the New Testament and you see how much conflict there was between the priests and Jesus, right? So it's kind of hard to read priests in the Old Testament with any sense of charitability at all. But who ordained this? Who planned this? Who purposed this? The Lord himself. We need to kind of dig down beneath. What's what's causing all of our discomfort and our our resistance and our hesitation when it comes to thinking about the priesthood in the Old Testament? Certainly part of it has to be that it's so foreign to us. It's so unfamiliar to us, right? That's got to be part of it. But another part, a second thing, has to do with just our flawed understanding of what holiness is. We, we tend to think that, that a, to, for a priest to be holy and for us to think of them as holy, it must then mean, this is the way we usually go about it, and it's mistaken, flawed, we, we think, oh, this is a superior person. This is a morally, spiritually superior person. This is the A-team, right, as far as spirituality is concerned. And that's not really what priesthood was at all. Not, not in any way. It really had much more to do with the fact that they have, not that they're spiritually superior, superior, but rather that they've been set apart. Set apart for God's special task, his special purposes. In that sense, we can say the priest is consecrated. In that sense, the, the priest is sacred, set apart for special purposes. In that sense, we can say the priest is holy. But there's something else when you really start thinking about what is going on with my hesitation, my resistance. It's not just that it's foreign, these these folks seem foreign to me. It's not just that I have a flawed understanding of holiness. It's that just the idea of a priest seems to make God far off. Right? The idea of having a priest, we think, seems to put God at a distance. It seems to create a barrier between God and his people. Well, here's the crazy thing. That's just the opposite of how we should think. The priesthood was created not to put God's people at a distance, but to bring them close, that they would be near to him. You see? In fact, we could go so far as to say this when we think of the priesthood. And and what we see here in Leviticus 8, the Lord desires, earnestly desires relationship with us as people. And we see that in the ordination of the priests. His earnest, deep desire for relationship with you and I. And we see that with the ordination of the priests. And as you look at this passage, we're going to do that here just a little bit uh, for a few minutes there's a couple of different perspectives, a couple of different views that could be taken, a few different things that we could gain in understanding more about this relationship between God and his people. And the the two perspectives, the two views we're going to take are this. And if you've printed out the outline, this is the two points. First, clarity is given for the people in understanding something of this relationship. And humility is given triumphed or or trumpeted for the priests 
again in regards to this relationship. Clarity for the people, humility for the priest. Okay? Let's take a look at this. So first, clarity for the people. Now imagine you're there. Again, I, want to, I need you to use your imagination here, okay? So stay with me. You're there watching this unfold. You're in the crowd as a man or a woman or as a child. You're watching these events unfold that day. How does it land on you? How does it strike you? What are you learning? What are you discerning about God and his relationship with his people and what you see there amidst as one of the people? What is clarified for you? Well, first of all, it has to be, if you're paying attention, our deep need. Our deep need. God's great holiness. We've been talking about that through the course of this series in, in Leviticus. Remember the Leviticus question we keep coming back to week after week after week? How can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? Now transpose this to the, to the question of worship. You know, all the sacrifices are laid out. They're ready. But who's going to administrate them? Who's going to do it? We, we know that, that uh, we have all the, the sacrifices, the burnt offering and, the, and the, um, the sin offering and the reparation offering and, and all of, of these offerings, the grain offering and the wave offering and now this ordination ceremony, these sacrifices. It is so obvious, God in his holiness and we in our unholiness, we have such this great dilemma, this great dilemma. We know. We can see the record, even at this stage of history. His holiness is such, his purity is such, his character is such, that it destroys, and I don't mean that metaphorically, <laughs> his holiness destroys any sinfulness, just as surely as light does darkness. So how in the world are you and I, people like us, as we're standing there in the crowd, watching this unfold, We've heard, we know something of everything that's transpired in Leviticus 1 through 7 so far and the history in Exodus. How in the world can we stand, can we come into the presence of a God like that? Here's the answer. Through his chosen priest, his mediator. That's the only way any human being can stand in his presence is by having a mediator. His chosen priest priest that's what we see here our deep need our deep need and in addition to that coming right alongside that his deep desire our deep need and the lord's deep desire you see that in his initiating this whole thing with us again we're standing in the crowd we're thinking about this our history with him going back to exodus he has initiated this who, who provided the priesthood who's provided all these sacrifices to picture this and image this and reflect this, and now has provided the priest. If this wasn't our brilliant idea, this was his. He's the one who has provided this, that there might be access to him, that there might be a bridge of fellowship and relationship with him. He has initiated this with us, and he is also trying to impress some things upon us. Okay, we got a slide. Can we pop that up there now? Okay, I don't have a laser pointer, so you're going to have to make do, okay? But this is an artist's rendering of the high priest's garments that we just read a moment ago from Leviticus 8. And when you wed uh, Exodus 28 with Leviticus 8, this is what you get, okay? Now, let's, let's talk about this for just a minute. 
in Exodus, we read that these garments, as you see pictured there, as we read of from just a moment ago from Leviticus 8, and again, you can look at it if you want to when you get home, Exodus 28, these garments were given to the high priest that the priest would have glory and beauty. That's the way the ESV translates it. Or as the NIV puts it, dignity and honor in the presence of the people, marked out in these ways. You see the colors. The colors, if you go back and you read the descriptions of the tabernacle, those are the same colors that you see. The priest is tied with the tabernacle. There's this sense of royalty being conveyed here and the, the, the richness of it all and divinity as well as a representative with the coat and the robe and the ephod and the turban that you can see. Let me just point out two things, two things symbolically that are worth noting. You can see that breast piece there with the 12 stones. Those are 12 precious stones. And it's in Exodus that you read that every one of those stones was marked by the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Okay? Born upon the heart, if you will, the chest of the high priest as he goes into the presence of God. In addition to that, the two onyx stones upon the shoulder of the ephod. You see that there on, on the slide? Each one of those was with a jeweler's skill marked with six of the names of the tribes of Israel on one and six upon the other. Again, the idea being that this is the representative of God's people coming into God's presence for God's purposes. He wants to know us. There's intentionality here right from the very start, symbolically being demonstrated to us. Okay, you can pop the slide down. Now, we're back in the crowd. You're a man, you're a woman there in the crowd, you're a child watching all this unfold. You, you've, you've seen the washings and the anointing and the sacrifices. You can see how Aaron is clothed now and how his sons are clothed in not nearly that ornate way. What if we believed what we saw? What if that really caught our attention and, and, we, and our hearts were gripped by this? The need we have, the provision that's been given, uh, that he would be our God and we would be his people, his chosen and beloved ones. What would that do to our ceaseless striving to impress and prove ourselves? What would that do if we believe what we saw? What would it do to our fears for tomorrow, our future? As though somehow he was going to lead us out and dump us off. If we believe what we saw. What would that do to our low expectations of him and prayerless days before him as though he wasn't there and didn't care? What would it do? If we believed what we saw, 
You see, he desires relationship with his people. And we see that right here with the ordination of his priests. That's the first thing, clarity for the people. The second thing, now shifting the perspective, shifting the, the, the vantage point. Okay, so now we're not assuming the place and the role and the perspective of the people. How about the priests? You're Aaron. You're Aaron. Now what do you see? Now what do you experience? Now how does all of this land upon you? Okay? Put yourself there. Humility. Why humility? Why would we say that? Let's talk about Aaron's personal history. Who is Aaron? What do we know of him? Well, he's Moses' older brother. Yeah, and he was his spokesman early on and a key figure with the Exodus and standing before Pharaoh and all of that. But more recently, what do we know of Aaron? What do we know of, of him? Don't, you don't need to go back right now, but maybe this afternoon. Exodus 32, the incident with the golden calf. There's Moses upon Mount Sinai receiving the tablets of the law and the plans for the tabernacle. Down at the base of the mountain, the people are getting restless. Aaron decides, oh, I'll give them what they want. And he crafts this idol, this golden calf, through which they can worship. They're going to worship the Lord through this thing in direct, crass violation of the Lord's commands, which is nothing less than covenant infidelity, spiritual adultery, and cosmic treason. And who has led it? Who did it? Who crafted, I'm going to say this lightly, the damn thing? I mean, literally. That's, I'm not just flippantly using that word. Aaron did. Aaron did. And yet Aaron is now chosen to be the high priest. Does that encourage you? It ought to. Think with me. Think of how this glaring example points to this glowing, glorious principle that the Lord in His grace does not wait for or insist upon perfection in His people before He will work through them. And Aaron is exhibit A. So am I. So are you. And this is good news. That's really good news. His personal history, grounds for humility, something else. His significant calling. Oh, think with me. You're there. You're Aaron. You're going through this, the weight of the ceremony. You are standing there before the Lord. And, and Moses is, is carrying these things out in, in, in obedience to the Lord's commands before all the people. The washing. Imagine it. The washing. And then you're clothed, and then the anointing. Now try and smell, smell the spices, feel the oil as it's flowing, ladies, sorry, down your beard, upon the hems of your robes, as Psalm 133 says. The offerings, you're, you're laying your hand, you and your sons laying your hands upon those creatures as they're, just before they're slaughtered in your stead. And then the meal you share together with your fellow priests before the Lord. And then, though, you're not ready. You've got seven days. You're, it's going to take seven 
days for this ordination to be complete. Do you think there's just a little sense of weight here? And what do you think the, the, the message is that we ought to, to glean from this? Oh, my goodness. It's not just them, the people, the rabble, the masses, everybody else that needs atonement, everybody else that needs cleansing and ransom and redemption. It's me. It's me. In fact, in Aaron's case, you have to say all the more so because of his role and because of the stakes. Do you see the place for humility here? The place for humility. Well, let me just press fast because we're running out of time here. Again, let me, but let, me, let me try in terms of application. Let me go down this road. What if we believe this, okay? You're Aaron. This is what you've experienced. How was your day, honey? <laughs> this is what you've experienced. This is what you've seen. What if you believed it? What if it grabbed your attention? What if it grabbed your heart? What if you came into that day saying, <laughs> I'm God's gift to God's people in that conceited, foolish fashion, right? I mean, there's a sense in which the statement's true. The question is the heart behind it, right? So what if you say that in this conceited, foolish fashion? This just cuts the legs right up from underneath that because it is only because the Lord has raised you up to be a demonstration of his grace to his people and a specific expression of his grace to you that you have this role. Conversely, let's say you came to that day in a completely different posture, from a completely different place. Not, I'm God's gift to God's people, but I got nothing. I am nothing, and I have nothing. And I mean that, of course, that can be said in the right way too, but in this case, in the sense of sad despondency. This undercuts that as well because it lifts you up. It brings you down and lifts you up at the same time, beautifully at the same time. After all, what are you clothed in, right? For the sake of that glory and beauty and dignity and, and honor as an expression of this is how the Lord feels about you, Aaron. And by extension, his people who are called to be a nation of priests before the whole world. Yeah, it's humbling, but that's where this relationship begins. That's where it begins, and we see that with the ordination of these priests. Let's, uh, let me pray to just for a moment before we begin to shift towards the, the supper. Lord Jesus, thank you Thank you for this time. Thank you for Leviticus 8. Thank you for this ordination ceremony. Thank you for your mercy and the pictures that we see here. We ask that you would give us eyes with which we might be able to deeply, deeply, deeply see ourselves there and hear what you are saying even to us. And we pray in your name. Amen. Let me uh, set the stage for uh, this time of the celebration.